Chapter 5 Conclusions All political power tends to act without barriers and to extend its sphere of influence as far as possible. To control everything, not to leave any room in which things can happen freely without the intervention of the authorities. That is the goal to which every ruler secretly strives. Ludwig von Mises, Economist Most of the major ills of the world have been caused by well-meaning people who were obsessed with fanatical zeal to improve the lot of mankind in the mass through some pet formula of their own. The harm done by ordinary criminals, murderers, gangsters, and thieves is negligible in comparison with the agony inflicted upon human beings by the professional do-gooders, who attempt to set themselves up as gods on earth and who would ruthlessly force their views on all others with the abiding assurance that the end justifies the means. Henry Grady, Journalist Politics is, by its very nature, cooperation-inhibiting intervention. It destroys liberty in every form it has. There is therefore no right policy in the sense of liberty. Only the consistent abstinence from politics produces and maintains liberty. Rolf W. Puster, Philosopher It is not a new realization that unrestricted power, which also has a monopoly of force, represents a very considerable danger to those who are subject to it. The principle of democracy, the rule of law, human rights catalogs, the principle of subsidiarity, or the principle of the separation of powers are attempts to limit power. Unfortunately, compliance with these principles is entrusted to people who, in turn, are conditioned according to the minimum principle and seek to expand their power. To avoid problems caused by human ambition, we give more power to certain humans. This cannot work in the long run. Therefore, these principles will sooner or later erode. At some point, it doesn't matter which party wins the election, because to maintain power, everyone forms a coalition with everyone else. Law and order are changed by the majority at will, which largely eliminates the role of the judiciary as a check on power. The other, separation of powers, has in fact also been abolished, since the government controls the executive and the legislature simultaneously via its parliamentary majority. Unwanted results of referendums are ignored by the government or their implementation is delayed. That this is possible at all is due to the fact that all previous systems are based on system of domination and subordination. One side orders, the other must obey. One side is constantly changing the rules of the game, the other cannot do anything about it. Unfortunately, this also applies to the rules intended to protect the individual. Moreover, the respective rulers bear no economic consequences for their decisions, remain legally immune from liability, and have no enforceable obligations towards the ruled. Such power without liability corrupts everyone in the end. If governments go too far, they are either voted out of office, in democracies, or overthrown, in autocracies and dictatorships. Then a new government comes along and the same game starts all over again. There is still no solution to the question of how we can prevent the group in power from gaining ever more powers, enriching themselves to the detriment of the population, largely excluding them from decision-making, 
and finally bringing about the ruin and collapse of the system. It is therefore time to try out new mechanisms to limit power. The following recommendations are derived from the findings gained so far. 1. The Disempowerment of Politics All systems are about political power, but it is precisely in democracies that there is a constant free-for-all battle over who exercises it. Society is divided into various groups that want to impose their ideas on all others or at least have the others pay for them. An enormous amount of time, energy, and money is spent on getting the government or the parliament to pass or prevent certain laws. Political activists, in particular, will never rest. They create and fill positions that are state-financed and in which they receive a regular income without providing any measurable goods or services in return. They can then use this position to permanently agitate. Political ideas that deny personal responsibility for one's own failure and at the same time postulate a right to live at the expense of others will always be popular. They are simply the easiest way to increase one's standard of living and mental well-being. Of course, such systems cannot function permanently. They inevitably destroy themselves over time. The combination of the minimum principle, non-liability, and herd mentality means that sooner or later all democracies will become welfare states that will establish increasingly totalitarian rules and ultimately run out of money. There is no way around this insight. A system, however legitimate, which by law provides for expropriations in favor of third parties, for example in the form of taxes and social security contributions, and to which not all those concerned have agreed to in advance, can create neither peaceful nor predictable cooperation. It destroys the foundations and results of voluntary cooperation through state power. It successively annihilates what makes a society successful and attractive and leads to a fight of all against all for the implementation of regulations favorable to some at the expense of others. The only remedy is to remove power from politics in general. The fewer areas of life politics controls, the less important it is who controls or influences politicians. Anyone who wants to avoid receiving special benefits from the government at the expense of third parties must create a system of government that cannot grant special benefits at all. 2. A Genuine Social Contract We have also seen that our fictitious social contract is an inadmissible contract at the expense of third parties. Instead, formal equality on the basis of personal assent to a genuine contract would be appropriate, even and especially if one of the contractual partners is economically stronger than the other. Such equality is the basis of all private law systems, that is, the collections of laws and decisions that regulate the relationship between private parties. Both parties have the same rights and obligations. Each rule applies symmetrically to both. Only this strict reciprocity has made it possible for private law systems to be generally accepted and, for example, for the principles of Roman law to continue to be valid today. In contemporary government systems, however, not only the level of taxes, but also the content and number of laws are unpredictable and are subject to constant change. As a rule, the citizen concerned has no way of taking action against it. 
If the courts stop a law once, then politics will quickly make a new one. The constantly swelling flood of regulations is a burden and a constant source of uncertainty, especially for companies. The same applies to private individuals who want to plan their retirement pension or simply pursue their preferences. Things that were allowed yesterday are already forbidden today. A true social contract worthy of its name therefore requires the expressed prior consent of all those concerned. It must be sufficiently specific and must not be unilaterally alterable. In this respect, redistributive systems are also possible, but only to the extent that all the potential payers have agreed. Forced redistribution, on the other hand, leads to constant struggles for distribution, leading to discord and social disharmony. False incentives are also set by punishing increased performance and rewarding reduced performance. In a true contractual society of equal partners, it is not acceptable to make regulations at the expense of third parties simply to expropriate contractual parties or to put excessive obstacles to termination in their path. In this respect, there is a simple rule of thumb. Every genuine social contract or every constitution should be compatible with general principles of private law. This also means that there is no right to live at the expense of others beyond family or contractually agreed claims. 3. The Granting of Personal and Economic Freedom In order for the beneficial effects of voluntary cooperation to unfold optimally, extensive liberty must be granted. In a human community, however, freedom can never be without limits. In the sense of the golden rule, it is limited by the freedom of others and the regulatory framework that regulates peaceful and conflict-free cooperation in the spirit of a balanced settlement of interests. Within this framework, which may be different depending on subjective preference or target group, the more freedom societies grant, the more successful they are. This applies to both economic and personal liberties. Of course, this also includes responsibility and liability for the consequences of one's own conduct. It is not possible to grant economic freedom without any personal freedom. This is not a sustainable solution because economic freedom leads to people becoming more self-confident once they have realized what they can do on their own. They then discover that those who govern them are by no means more qualified or wiser than they are, and that denying their personal freedoms is a purely arbitrary act of the rulers. On the other hand, those who can lead a self-determined life are, on average, more content and happier because they can say and write what they think, join forces with like-minded people at will, and decide for themselves which agreements they make with, which content, and with whom or not. Accordingly, free societies will refrain from forcibly redistributing, obligating to contract, regulating private life, or granting privileges to certain groups or individuals. In this way, they automatically develop into meritocracies in which the best takes a position solely on the basis of his performance. Compared to systems that discriminate differently, for example by setting gender or even ethnic origin requirements for filling certain positions, quotas for women or ethnic diversity, etc., Meritocracies are therefore necessarily superior. Even a system that ties 95% of the population up 
to help the 5% who cannot help themselves has no long-term chance of success compared with a system in which 95% of the inhabitants are free and able to pursue their desired activities. After some time, productivity in the free system will be so high that the remaining 5% can be helped more effectively and on a voluntary basis. Subsequently, all inhabitants in the free system will be better off. 4. The Guarantee of Private Property Without property, there is no free pricing, no incentive to create anything of lasting value for oneself or one's family, no peacemaking effect, and no commitment to a particular community. It is therefore essential to grant private property, including property in the means of production and land, and to restrict it as little as possible. However, regulations that specify the details of ownership are required, such as how far the right extends into the air, overflight rights, and into the ground, natural resources, tunneling, which impacts are to be tolerated, noises, smells, rights of way, and which activities are also to be prohibited or only permitted to a limited extent, explosives, radioactivity, toxic substances, exhaust gases, and waste due to their dangerous nature for others near the property in question. Furthermore, regulations need to specify whether the ownership of the land differs from the ownership of the house built on it and whether special forms of ownership can arise, for example, in condominiums. The acquisition, transfer, and inheritance of property should be uncomplicated and legally secure for both individuals and companies. 5. The Rule of Law and Equality Before the Law Any existing rules must apply to everyone, including those in power and those running the society. Furthermore, rules and sanctions must not be pursued selectively. Differing treatment is only permissible if there is a factual reason. Religion must be a private matter and its practice is free as such, but does not entitle anyone to any privileges. In particular, access to economic activity must not depend on relationships or group privileges. Equality before the law or before the contractually agreed rules is a basic prerequisite for long-term stability. Less is more. The more rules and laws there are, the greater the probability that they will only be applied selectively the greater the likelihood that they will create loopholes and exceptions that knowledgeable persons will be able to exploit. In the end, legal uncertainty is greater when there are more laws. The over-complexity of the present system must therefore not be countered with equally or more complex new regulations, but with a few clear rules and sanctions which will also be consistently implemented. Gaps in regulation can be closed within the framework of existing legal principles. If necessary, rights can be developed further by court decisions. 6. Competition through small size and subsidiarity Human power must be limited. Guaranteed legal positions of the individual under the social contract, which can be claimed before independent arbitration courts, are a first step. But competition has proved to be the only permanently effective means of limiting human power. For this reason alone, a multitude and diversity of communities is desirable. In fact, even not exceeding a certain size is a value in itself, 
because otherwise control or even just compliance with the existing rules and processes is hardly possible anymore. The decision makers are then too far away from the real problems to make appropriate or even just well-informed decisions. Knowledge is always decentralized. According to the principle of subsidiarity, problems should be solved as far as possible by the individual, the smallest group or the lowest level of an organizational hierarchy. When applied to communities, this means either dividing the community when it grows beyond a certain size or introducing additional levels of autonomy. Diversity and competition are necessary not only as a means of limiting power, but also for gaining knowledge and further development. Every evolution requires diversity. This must necessarily be the case with a system based on trial and error. Unfortunately, since the beginning of time, it has been the concern of politics and religion to destroy this diversity of human coexistence in favor of uniform solutions. Therefore, alternative forms of society must firstly be allowed, and secondly, citizens must not be prevented from exiting the system. Anyone who does not want freedom but a communitarian atmosphere and social warmth has every right in the world to seek that out. But he has no right to detain or restrain those who prefer freedom against their will or to force them to finance his desired way of life. Ultimately, a system is successful if people want to live in it voluntarily. Whether it is based on pure doctrine or a mix of different ideologies is of secondary importance. Anything that is in demand is permitted as long as participation is voluntary. Social orders that only work if people are held in them against their will and forced to behave in a certain way will fail in the long run anyway. If you have a good product, you do not have to fear criticism or competition and therefore do not need to prohibit or regulate it. 7. Defense The best man can't live in peace if the bad neighbor won't let him. A policy of appeasement never works because it is always perceived as weakness. It can, at best, mean a short-term postponement of the inevitable confrontation. Property-supporting systems in particular must therefore ensure that those who reject private property can be fended off if necessary. For example, when they come and want to get what they think they are entitled to anyway. The same applies to the defense against all other aggressors and to the sanctioning of breaches of internal rules. There is no power vacuum in human coexistence. Those who do not insist on their values and remain prepared to defend them by force will have to accept the values of others. The one who forges all his swords into plowshares plows in the end for those who have kept their swords. Therefore, internal and external defenses are indispensable. This includes border security, control, and selection of immigrants. A monopoly of force is likely to be necessary in the future, too, if peace within a society is to be secured in the long term. The elementary right to self-defense and defense of others must not, of course, be ruled out. 8. Cohesion through a consensus on values Living together in a society requires a certain basic consensus about the rules that apply there. 
anyone who wants a state that is merely a service provider so that he can develop at his own discretion should not be living with people who regard the state as a super nanny who relieves them of all of life's risks and also fights to redress any and all grievances in the world, real or imagined. The same applies to those who advocate universal human rights, including the right to change their religion, to ridicule gods, and who believe in equality between men and women. They should not live with people who reject those rights because their God dictates otherwise. Whoever objects to the concept of private property will probably reject almost everything proposed here. In this respect, no compromise is possible. Either the individual has the right to acquire property, or he does not. Ultimately, third ways gradually lead to the deprivation of the owner's rights. The only peacekeeping solution is to spatially separate incompatible worldviews or to expel those who interfere with them. Otherwise, there will be a constant struggle for power because the respective concepts are mutually exclusive. If, however, the views are spatially separated, peaceful trade and occasional cooperation between the systems becomes possible. 9. Setting the Right Incentive Structure Current systems provide incentives for rulers to enrich themselves at the expense of society, to waste other people's money to increase their prestige, and to buy votes by having the state provide supposedly free benefits. Whether the system is more democratic or more authoritarian is of secondary importance. The misplaced incentives are comparable. Authoritarian orders only work better as long as the people at the top are strong in integrity and leadership. But all systems whose success depends on particularly competent people being at the top have no chance of survival in the long run. New approaches must therefore be designed in such a way that they can survive even without ingenious leaders. A new, long-term, stable social order must require those in charge of the social order to 1. Have an economic interest in the success of the society, skin in the game. 2. Be held liable for errors, coupling of power and responsibility. 3. Allow their citizens to leave or secede at any time without financial or other obstacles, allowing competition. 4. Be unable to grant special benefits to individual groups or citizens. Avoidance of lobbying, corruption, and struggles over state largesse. 5. Have clearly defined written obligations and competences which cannot be changed unilaterally. Legal certainty, predictability. 6. Can be sued by the parties concerned in the event of differences before independent courts or arbitration bodies neutral arbitration. It becomes clear, for example, that even the Western states actually only fulfill the last criterion, often with caveats, since only certain organs can sue the government. The legal security and predictability actually provided for by the constitutions is no longer given in state practice, since those in power, with their parliamentary majorities and by the appointment of judges, can largely arbitrarily control both the wording and interpretation of the Constitution. 10. Other Insights, Other Systems 
Anyone who does not share these conclusions and believes that the majority naturally has the right to amend the social contract at any time, even at the expense of the minority, will of course come to other conclusions as to the ideal nature of new systems. Others consider even the measures proposed here to be too far-reaching and fundamentally reject a monopoly of force, for example. What is decisive, however, is not whether my analysis is correct in all its facets, but that competition between the systems begins. Only this enables people to voluntarily enter the social order that best suits their preferences and convictions. In all likelihood, there is no ideal solution for everyone anyway. The philosopher Ralph W. Pooster has come to a very similar conclusion. In view of the great differences between individuals, it seems to me quite logical that the definitive information about what coercion one has to accept and which one not cannot come from the theory of freedom, but ultimately from the voluntary action that actually takes place. In general, we can state, for the purpose of minimizing subjective coercion, Every actor, ceteris paribus, prefers such cooperation partners whose coercive sensitivity resembles his own in such a way that they would tend to lay down the same rules as he himself. From what I have said, it follows that the following development would be somewhat likely if actors could organize their social interaction voluntarily and without interventions. A richly structured federal system of cooperating communities would emerge, characterized by complex bundles of similar coercive balances with regard to the rules of living together, which are regarded as central. These communities, together with the regulatory systems in place within them, would compete with each other for the involvement of other actors, so that these actors would have a choice as to which community to join with their voluntarily established rules albeit at the price of recognizing the rules in force there, which the respective community would insist on being observed. It can also be assumed that each community provides for coercive measures to enforce its rules. For 7 billion people, 200 different systems, many of them almost identical, are simply not enough. The more new and different models there are, the better. What I would like to propose on the basis of the findings discussed here is one of many conceivable products, one that I believe will succeed in the market of living together. No more, no less. This product is the free private city.